Hey everybody, we're coming off of a series of meetings in the Midwest where we've been watching God do amazing, amazing things. We're spending time with old friends and making new friends, and I would say we're watching the Lord break a spirit of religion off of people. And what that means is they're they're stepping into the freedom of Christ in you, the hope of glory, a reality where there's no veil of distance or separation between us and the Lord, where you can step into that reality that Christ has set you free from the bondage of sin, of death, of fear, of torment on your life, of bondage even in in iniquity in your body. We're seeing people get healed. All kinds of amazing things happen. So let's dive right into a message I preached a few nights ago on ascending to the hill of the Lord. Go ahead and get your Bibles out and get ready. Go to Matthew chapter 5 and hang on. All right, if you got your Bibles uh, tonight, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 5. There's a, there's a verse that the Lord's been stirring in my heart a lot lately out of Matthew chapter 5. Keep in mind what Jesus is doing here is he's just going along and he's saying, Blessed, blessed, blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the, you know, they're merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are they. And then he gets to verse 7, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this phrase really gripped me. Now, all of these are really important. The Beatitudes are all super important, but lately... Now, I don't know if this happens with you, but there are certain phrases in Scripture that I've read a thousand times, maybe. And for a particular season, they'll come to the surface, and it's almost like God will put a spotlight on it and say, pay attention to this. And in the past two weeks, I feel like the Lord has been saying, pay really close attention to this. And sometimes then, as a minister, I've got to discern, is this a word specifically for me? That's how I typically approach the Scripture. This is a word for me. But then, I begin to realize, oh, wait, this is a corporate word for the body. And so I'm just going to share this a little bit tonight and just kind of talk out of my spirit, and we'll see where where we go here. The phrase that really gripped me was the phrase, the pure in heart shall see God. The pure in heart shall see God. How many of you have a have a a desire, like even a hunger, the slightest tinge of a hunger to see God? Okay, yeah, I I think we all have that, that burning passion. It's like I mean, first off, we want to know if what we believe is real. That's nice to know. But the other part is like the beholding of him. You know, it's been often said, and I don't know who first said it, but what we behold, we become, right? And so to see him, to behold him is to be changed, to be transformed into his image and into his likeness. It's actually returning to the point of our origin, returning to where we have from his perspective, always been, right? Uh, how do we know this? God told Jeremiah, the prophet, I knew you before I even formed you. Now think about that. Knew you before you even knew you could be known. So what did he know? What did he think of when he first thought of you? Because what he thought of when he first thought of you, that is who you truly are. That's your identity. And, And he is actually not going to give you the luxury of dictating to him how he can feel about you. He made up his mind about you long before you ever had the chance to try to impress him or disappoint him. He has always known who you are. So you have one assignment in this life, and that is to find out what God believes about you and agree with that, okay? Now, with that in mind, let's come back to this verse. The pure in heart shall see God. 
you might think it's up to you to be pure. This isn't a salvation issue, by the way. I'm talking about pure in heart here. It's not up to you to be pure. Your purity comes not from you. It comes from Christ alone. You're, if you have ever tried to make yourself pure, pure enough to live up to what you think is the standard of God, that's called getting on the hamster wheel of religious effort. If you've ever tried to do that, you will find super quick that it's futility. It doesn't work because you can never do enough. <clears throat> you can never make yourself holy enough. I mean, there's so many people running around, <coughs> excuse me, these days with just deep spiritual trauma. I talked to people, many of them came out of church. And the minute you say anything about church or speak Christianese, they have this reaction. <clears throat> In almost every case, what you find is people who did their best in their own effort to try to live up to the rules and couldn't do it. When we realize it is Christ alone that makes us pure, then we begin to rest in his identity as our inheritance. I want you to think of a few verses, though, because there are some things that you and I think, in a sense, we can do to align with what God believes about us. For example, Solomon said, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Pure in heart shall see God. <clears throat> Paul said in Philippians 4, whatsoever things are true, lovely, just, good report, gives us a whole list of good things to think about. He says, think on these things. Because even within the context of the new covenant and filled with the Holy Spirit, you can think about whatever you want. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Think on these things, Paul says in the New Covenant. The pure in heart shall see God. So purity of heart is not me trying to work to think pure thoughts. Purity of heart is actually when my mind agrees with God's mind about me. Okay? When I begin to let go of the lies that I believed about myself, <clears throat> and I begin to lay a hold of the truth of what God believes about me, if I can start to think like him, then I can actually start to reflect the nature and the character of the one in whose image and likeness I'm made. <clears throat> so, pure in heart shall see God. Jesus isn't a mystery to be solved. He's, he's a mystery to behold. And, and, and the mystery of the gospel, according to Colossians 1, is, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, because of Christ... You have already been made pure. So how do we think of ourselves rightly? Well, there's a great little verse in Psalm 24. Right after the 23rd Psalm, 24th Psalm <clears throat> says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, the phrase ascending into the hill of the Lord or to the hill of the Lord speaks of coming into the presence of God. But later in Psalm 139, David's going to have a revelation that goes like this. Where do I go to get away from you? What he says in Psalm 139, he says things like this. Starts out by saying, Lord, you search me and you know me. 
You know every time I sit down, every time I stand up, you understand every thought that I have. You encompass my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. There's not even a word in my tongue. You already know it. You've hedged me and behind me, before me. You've laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is so wonderful for me. It's so high, I can't even attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? How can I flee from your presence? Then he comes up with some theological conundrums. He says, if I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will hold me. And if I say, ah, I'm going to wait for the darkness to cover me. No, it's all going to be like light about me. Pretty much all the same to you. So I'll just praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And he just kind of comes to this realization that I guess I'm going to think about myself the way that you think about me. And the way that I did that is I beheld you. I looked at you, and I began to realize there's no place I can go to get away from you. Well, that's a far, far, far cry from who will ascend to the hill of the Lord. So in Psalm 24, ascending to the hill of the Lord with clean hands and a pure heart, there's a picture that paints a little bit of distance, the bottom of the hill to the top of a hill. And it's like a climb, and you're thinking, oh man, that's a... That's a journey. That's a tough one. But ascending into the realm of the Spirit is not going to a distant place. It's just moving to a different dimension. Heaven, by the way, is not a distant location. It's just a different realm. Where's Jesus? In heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. Where does he live? in you. Heaven's actually a lot closer than you think. Matter of fact, Paul said in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, right now, present tense, you are seated in heavenly places with Christ. So it might mean I'm already there in the spirit? Yeah. There's something about your spirit that is already seated in Christ, in him, on the throne, in the throne room. That's the reality of your present position, okay? But Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the present reality even here on this earth. So I don't even know what you want to do with that or how you even try to wrap your mind around that, but don't think of heaven as a distant place. Just simply think of it as a different realm. So how do I access that different realm? Well, after Psalm 24, you jump a couple of psalms, you get to Psalm 27. And uh, Psalm 27, the beautiful phrase is like, one thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord, David says, all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, for in times of trouble you'll hide me in your pavilion, in the secret of your tabernacle, you'll hide me, you'll set me up upon a rock. Now listen to this phrase, this is what he says. Psalm 27, he says, Now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me. Okay, stop for a second. <clears throat> One guy surrounded by enemies, an army, <clears throat> and David had a few. And this, this is David's posture now. He's got enemies all around him that want him dead. He's standing in the middle of them. And God, who is called the glory and the lifter of our head, doesn't change David's location. 
He simply shifts his perspective. He says, now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me. So what? So God can destroy your enemies? No. No. It's not going to do anything actually about the enemies. He's just going to shift David's perspective. He says this, now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me, and I will offer in your tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Nobody battles like that. You got enemies round about you, you're sitting here, what is it, what's happening here? I want you to see from a spiritual perspective. He's looking around at his enemies all around him. He's got like a lower level perspective. And God reaches down and doesn't change his location, just simply shifts his perspective. And now he sees differently and he begins to worship God. Sacrifices of joy. He says, I will sing praises unto the Lord. What is he doing? He has changed the posture of his perspective and now he's seeing from a completely different realm in this realm, the enemies are a non-issue. This is why God, in Psalm 23, prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Why? He's trying to shift our perspective. <clears throat> also why Jesus, in, in the New Testament, says this, tell you the truth, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, Pray for those who despitefully use you and do good to those who mistreat you. And we're like super disappointed with that because I was really convinced that God was going to, like Jesus was going to return and wipe out everybody who voted different than me. Ah, oh, it's a, it's a really uncomfortable truth when you begin to realize that Jesus loves everybody you hate. And what he's actually interested in is he's interested in changing something in them. There's a transformation that happens when a person hears the gospel. The word gospel, it's the word good news, beautiful word. And the word news is an important word because it means what has already happened. When we preach the gospel, we are proclaiming to people what Christ has done. He has done it. And so like in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, Paul said, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and is now committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. And so he's convincing us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we're reconciled to God. And he gets to the end, says, as an ambassador of Christ, I urge you, be reconciled to God. He's already told us we are. Now he's just simply telling us, be who you are, right? So when we talk about the pure in heart shall see God, people often will think, <clears throat> okay, I got to figure out how to have a pure heart. Stop. Let's just, first off, rest in the purity of Christ as your identity. Not you. It's not about you. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be forgiven, if a sinner wanted to be forgiven, they brought a lamb to the priest. <clears throat> the priest didn't inspect the sinner. Didn't grab the lamb and look at the sinner and go, hmm, do 10 push-ups 
quote five verses. I mean, there was nothing about the sinner. It wasn't about that. The priest only inspected the lamb because it was the quality of the lamb that determined the grace available to the sinner. And in the same way, it's not your actions, it's not your uh, behavior that makes you a sinner. It's the quality of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the entire world that determines the grace that's available to you and I. You might be more saved than you thought. And the gospel isn't simply inviting you to agree with what God believes about you. 2,000 years ago, you and the Lord bled into one. John 14, verse 20 says, in that day, Jesus says, in that day you will know I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Habakkuk, uh, one of the most famous verses in the Bible is in Habakkuk 2, 14. People quote it a lot, they just don't know where it's found. But in verse 13 of Habakkuk chapter 2, God comes to Habakkuk and he says, Habakkuk, I see the earth filled with violence and bloodshed. Nations that have been formed through violence and bloodshed. And I see iniquity as people are laboring to feed the fire. It's an interesting piece of poetry because it speaks of people who are working so hard and it feels like everything they're getting, they might as well just be throwing it away. It's like working and getting nowhere. And I looked at that verse and I thought, oh my goodness, Habakkuk must have been looking through the calendar of time into the United States in our day today, into the world in our day today, filled with violence, bloodshed, bloodshed, and people laboring in vain, in futility to feed the fire. Then Habakkuk 2.14 comes. And you would think that God would look at the world like this and say, ah, condemnation to it. We're just going to throw it all away. No, that's not what God does. God goes, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. Puts a conjunction there. For, in other words, connecting the earth in this chaotic situation like we see in Genesis 1. And he says, for the earth will be filled, not just parts of it, but filled with what? the knowledge or perception what's happening there's a shift in perspective just a shift in perspective every person is one encounter with god away from the slightest perspective shift that changes everything <laughs> every person is just one encounter away from the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the what the glory everybody say the word glory there's a few different words in the Bible for glory. You've got Shekinah, which is the majesty of God, the glowing majesty of God. But then you've got the word Chabad. That's a fun word. Everybody say Chabad. Chabad is like, it's like a blanket soaked in oil hanging over your head. It's really heavy. And it's dripping on you every now and then. It may, you may feel a drip in a corporate gathering or a worship service or a time walking with the Lord or just praying or opening the scriptures or hearing a song. You might just feel a drip here and there. But the weight of the glory covering the earth, an engagement with the tangible presence of God in a way that you can't deny, that is the promise of God over an earth in the condition of violence, bloodshed, iniquity, and futile labor. 
the earth is going to be filled with a perception of the weighty glory of God. Oh, just like, he gives an analogy here, just like the waters cover the sea. It's really all about him, and that's what the kabod is. It's the awareness of the presence of the resurrected Christ, and to see, to behold him, to feel the presence of the Lord, the presence of Jesus literally manifest in the room. That's the kind of thing. It's like, I mean, we talk about him all night tonight, but the reality is he's present. He's here even right now to say, let there be light. And as the entrance of his word gives light, what my prayer is tonight is that it's the beginning of this weekend's series of teachings that your perspective starts to shift a little bit. Because what happens is he starts singing praises unto the Lord. What is God doing? He is trying to get David to agree with him. And so now he lifts his head and what happens is posture changes. He goes from warfare to joyfare. Joy. Now shall my head be lifted up above my enemies round about me and I will offer in your tabernacle sacrifices of joy. Could David have possibly seen ahead into the future to see that in Christ, in the new covenant, that we would be the tabernacle of God. So what are some things that God believes about you that will change your thoughts about you? Well, uh, when Jesus said, it is finished, the veil between the holy of holies and all of humanity ripped from top to bottom. And we ask, well, did it let God out or did it let man in? Yes. Yes, both. It removed all barriers of distance and separation between you and God forevermore. Now, you go, okay, wait a minute. <clears throat> God is holy and I am not. And we say this uh, somehow from a place I know of desiring to somehow generate some humility. But you don't generate humility by saying a lie about yourself, okay? Because if your unholiness is based upon what you do, then your holiness is based upon what you do. And you can never do enough right? And so when God's glory, the purity of his holiness takes up residence in you, there's a collision of his holiness and your unholiness. Guess what? Somebody's going to win. Not going to be you. Well, you actually both win because what he does is he gives you his holiness. And the idea is, I know we invited the Lord into our life. We said, Jesus, come into my heart. But the greater reality is that he invited you into his. That's the deal. It's like, so you step into his holiness and now you become the righteousness of God in Christ. And when you step in, it's almost like he says, why don't you just come in and just come into my life? Leave yours out there. Mine's so much better. We'll just live mine. And that's the deal. We step into him and he steps into us. There's this, this union that happens and that becomes our identity. So now, see, <clears throat> the room, the holy of holies, was just a room until the glory of God filled it. That's what made it the holy of holies. And the glory of God is in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How much clearer can we make that? So, so that means you are more the holy of holies than the building ever was. What was the Ark of the Covenant? It was a box. 
ark is a Hebrew word, aron. It just means container. It was a container that carried the glory of God, the radiant glory of God upon it. And, and that container, that box, the ark of the covenant, that's you. You are the carrier of the glory of God. And, and you can say it like this. You are the ark of the new covenant. You are the holy of holies. These are just a couple of thoughts. You've got to start going, okay, God, I, yeah, you're right. I see it. I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe it. I certainly haven't had the experience of it maybe. But God, if you say that's who I am, then that's who I am. And that's really what it means to be the righteousness of God in Christ. You say, okay, well, wait, 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 back up, Bill. If I actually believe that, imagine the amount of pride and arrogance that I'd have. Yeah, only if you thought you did it. And that's why all of your religious efforts to try to become holy are so pointless. I'm not saying the efforts aren't worth, worth something, but they should be born as a byproduct of a revelation of who you all are ready are. We don't work to become holy. We work for the Lord because we already are. And when we see somebody who is doing something that isn't holy, rather than labeling them a sinner rotten to the core, all we're seeing is somebody who just simply doesn't know who they are because they haven't seen who he is. Now, whose responsibility is it to put him on display? Mm -hmm. that's, that's a big one. We'll get into that more tomorrow. But whose responsibility is it to put him on display? Jesus said in John 17, he goes, the finished work before the cross, actually. The, the first time he mentions the finished work, it's not the finished work of the cross, it's actually before. He says in John 17, 4 and 6, he says, Father, I finished the work that you gave me to do by glorifying your name here on the earth. I have revealed you to the world. He perfectly, Jesus perfectly showed us who the Father is. And then in John 20, he says this, as the Father sent me, I send you. Now you and I are sent to represent Christ to put the glory of God on display. Is it any wonder why the devil doesn't mind if we adopt false humility to believe lies about ourselves? Because as long as you believe a lie about you that God doesn't believe about you, you don't put the glory of God on display because you don't feel like you're worthy to even carry it. But the reality is, is the only way we can put the glory of God on display is if we let him shift our perspective to believe what he believes, to see like he sees. And this is how the pure in heart see God. I'm looking at him all over this room. I'm looking at people made in his image and likeness, stamped with the very image and likeness of God. We'll talk more about that tomorrow night too. Pretty soon you begin to realize, oh my goodness, where can I go to get away from you? I see you everywhere. I behold you everywhere. This is what the Apostle Paul found in Colossians 3.11 when he goes, there's no slave or free. There's no Jews or Greeks. There's not any, any barbarians or Scythians out there. He pulls the most hated, violent people groups of his day. He just grabs those two. He looks at, he goes, <clears throat> Christ is all and in all. 
What is he doing? He's saying, I've had a perspective shift. Everywhere I look, all I see is Christ. Everywhere I look, I see the image and likeness of God all around me. And you say, <clears throat> what if they don't see that in themselves? It begins with you. If we can see people differently, then perhaps maybe we'll become a living invitation for them to step in the truth of who they are. Because I think people are constantly asking the question, who do you say that I am? But more than that, they want to know, what do you see? Do you see me? Am I seen? And when you look at him, and you go, oh, I see the image and likeness of God on you. I see one made in the image and likeness of God. And it doesn't matter how many lies you've believed about yourself, and it doesn't matter how many actions you've committed in this costume to cause pain to yourself or somebody else, God has never forgotten who you truly are. He's the father of the prodigal son, who even though the son tries not to be a son, the father never stops being a father. Well, hey, listen, I pray this has been a blessing for you today. Quick announcement for those of you who are in Pennsylvania next week, we're going to have a marriage conference at Harvest Chapel in Abbottstown, Pennsylvania. Uh, Pastor Don and Lori Wollabaugh are going to be there. Matt and Anna Smith, who are senior leaders of the house now, they're going to be there and hosting, and we're so grateful to be with them. You can go to BillVanderbush.com, click on the link for Harvest Chapel to get registered for that event. Uh, this is uh, such a really important time, I think, in the history just of our country and in the body of Christ. And we want to keep in touch with you. If you want to be a part of this ministry, you want to support us, you can write to Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Or go to BillVanderbush.com, click on the Give button, and that'll take you to a page. It'll show you how to do that. Thanks for listening. See you next time.